Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Yes, it's episode 258. Welcome to Human Factors Cast. We're recording this episode live on September 15th, 2022. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I am joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hey, great to be back. Great to have you back. Actually, you were back last week, but kind of, sort of. It was different, but we'll talk about that. We got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about how a new study suggests that buttons in cars are safer and quicker to use than touchscreens. And later, we're going to cover some answers, uh, answer some questions from the community about knowing when to leave your job, typical tech stacks in human factors and UX, and what to look for in a company before joining them. But first, we got some programming notes. Hey, if you have been with the show for a while, um, thank you. We have uh, upcoming here later this month, actually, on the 27th, Tuesday. We're going to sit down, have a town hall. Once again, it's that time of the year. Have our quarterly town hall with the folks at HFES. Join us Tuesday, September 27th at 4 p.m. Uh, it's not a Friday this time. It's a Tuesday. So some scheduling things. Anyway, join us there. It'll be a great talk. Um, you'll also get that in, in your podcast feed right here. Uh, but Barry, what's what's going on over at 1202? So at 1202, we should have had a new episode out on Monday, but we've taken a period out as respect to um, the, the death of the, of the Queen here in the UK. So that is now going to go out a week on Monday, and where we're going to be talking about the, the Dirty Dozen with Gordon DuPont. And the interview, as I think I mentioned on the last episode, is actually not conducted by me. I've had to hand over the reins, or I was, I was asked if I could hand over the reins, um, to Michael Bates, who's a lecturer at the University of South Wales here in the UK. And he wanted to interview Gordon to, as, um, as, uh, to provide material for, for his lectures uh, for his students. And they gracefully said that I could use it as podcast material as well. So I let somebody else in the 1202 studio to play with the 1202 um bits and pieces uh, with me just um, producing it all in the background so that felt a bit awkward um but i but i was gracious enough to let it happen so that'll go live a week on monday and hopefully we'll um um everybody will um, dial into that one you know i'm i'm honestly a little bit jealous i would love to just sit back and do a producer role but anyway you're here for the news so let's get into the news Yes, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. Now, this is normally where I'd hand it over to Barry, but I just want to do a little bit of preamble. Last week, we actually started our first ever recast, which is uh, sort of a repackaging of one of our older elements and uh, or one of our older shows and, and putting it out there as a placeholder um, in, in uh, our programming schedule. Since Barry wasn't able to join us, it was, it was last minute, couldn't find a replacement. So we put that out there as a primer for this episode. Now, I know the topic's are not quite the same. Today, we're talking about buttons, controls, displays. Last time, uh, or, or in the recast episode, we were talking about um, artificial intelligence and how it might know the status of its passengers and how that might uh, impact some things going forward in the future. Thought that was a good tie-in to this. So in the future, you may see a couple more of those interesting little tidbits where we bring in a recast as a primer for an upcoming episode or uh, as a placeholder in relation to what came the prior week. So just be aware that's what's going on. That's why you saw maybe an older episode in your feed last week. But Barry, we're here to talk about buttons and controls and displays in cars. What is the story this week? 
So the story is, as you quite rightly say, study finds that buttons in cars are safer and quicker to use than touchscreens. So many car manufacturers are swapping out traditional buttons and switches in favour of touchscreen systems that cover all aspects of car control, from what you listen to on the radio through to driving settings and driving modes. But new evidence now shows that those touchscreens are potentially far less safe and efficient than the old school alternative, according to the findings of a Swedish car magazine. The magazine conducted tests across 12 models of cars, 11 modern, along with one 2005 Volvo with more physical controls, and allowed test drivers to get to know the ins and outs of the vehicles. The tests themselves were quite simple. Drivers were instructed to cruise down an empty airstrip at 68 miles an hour and were timed on the completion of four infotainment tasks, ranging from adjusting the air conditioning to messing with the radio. The magazine found that the 2005 Volvo far outperformed the modern infotainment screen-equipped cars, with a driver drive completing all four tasks in just 10 seconds, and a 1,000 feet travelled. Meanwhile, the best time the modern cars were nearly 14 seconds. But even these speeds were relative outliers, because the majority of infotainment-equipped vehicles took well over 20 seconds and at least 2,000 feet to conduct the tasks. So, Nick, how do you feel about cars evolving to have more in common with the smartphone than, say, a traditional American muscle car? Hmm. My reaction isn't to your question. My reaction is to the article. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. I, I think, look, to have to have um, more in common with a smartphone, I, in some ways it's good. In other ways, yeah, it's, it's not going to be great. But my reaction to the article is shocked Pikachu face. Uh, and like, this is... Yeah, in other news, uh, what's up? But but I I do want to mention there's um this is a great uh study I guess there's just a couple things with the study and the science that I have an issue with in in terms of using one control vehicle uh as as the button vehicle like it just seems like you couldn't find any other vehicles with just buttons to test it against. Is this an ad for Volvo? I don't know. Like that, that to me is <laughs> what it comes across as is like, we compared all of these high tech cars to this one 2005 Volvo, you know, it's an ad for Volvo. So aside from the issues with the, um, with the, with the study itself and, and using two different groups, I think this confirms a lot of people's uh, suspicions, at least in the human factors world. So not really a surprise to me. Barry, are you surprised at all by this? So, so, so surprised. Um, no, I think your point about the study methodology, really this is not done as a truly scientific study. It's done as a um, almost a, um, you know, a, a suck it and see type thing. And, and, and what does it do? It would have been inter more interesting if they'd compared the 2005 Volvo with a um, 2020-2022 Volvo um, because, you know, they've evolved and, and that type of thing. But fundamentally, I, I kind of think we're getting a bit greedy or a bit um, um, a bit demanding in the fact that we expect everything to work exactly as it should do right now straight away because all technology evolves. We know this. Um, some of it's good, some of it's bad. And I think we're still on the on the cusp of this smart car epoch, this smart car period. Um, we sort of we we we're hitting the extremes because I think there is a balance to be had. That you know we know that there is one manufacturer that um, that has gone down the route of a single display in the center of the car, which I think for all sorts of reasons is a terrible idea um, and screams to me safety issues and and all that sort of all that sort of stuff. But I think there is a, there is a balance to be had because um, you know the. the 
it's providing us more information. But we need to lean back, and I think we'll come into this in the in the discussion about why you know why tactile control is important. What what is it? What is it about them that gives us um, things that maybe a touchscreen doesn't? Um, and I think I probably should declare here that um, I'm going to lean into my own experiences of my two days of owning a uh, an electric vehicle um, with a big screen in the centre of it, or certainly a screen in the centre of it. Um, and so that has certainly provided me a bit more insight than perhaps I would have had this time last week. So should we just get into it? I want to I want to ask you before we even jump into anything. Like how's is is it just a big screen in the center or are there still some physical controls around like give me give me sort of the layout of your new vehicle. So um it does more more, more uh it isn't just a big screen so it has um a standard steering wheel with controls on that it has um a small screen a small it's not just screener but it's a small um screen behind it that gives you your displays of your speed and what i would say your your key indicators at that point um you still got obviously physical controls for um um, indicators and putting on your, your windscreen washers. It does have a physical lights button, um, but the touchscreen then gets used for everything from like radio, but it does set, you can set up a lot of driver settings and things like that as well. Um, and interestingly, th- today I had, an, I had a, an experience where I was showing some of the colleagues at work the, the car, and when I couldn't switch it on, the big screen didn't work. And I was like immediately, oh, I'm going to, have to send it back already. And this, but actually, we found out how to reset the screen. That that was fine. But I could still drive the car without the screen because I still had some of the smaller bits of information, which was great. Um, but we, um, if you had just not just a single touchscreen, you wouldn't have been able to do that. I don't think so. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, there's a whole lot of stuff around it that I've really enjoyed using with it. It's it. I guess in some ways, what the biggest revelation to me was, it's just like driving a car. Um, It is just fundamentally a car. I don't know quite necessarily what I was expecting. Um, There is a lot of stuff, a lot of the cues that I guess I would normally use that are missing. So normally you'd use the the rev frequency of the engine subliminally to know to have an indicator on sort of what sort of speed you're doing. Well, that just doesn't exist. Um, and these cars, you know, the car I've got is quite powerful. It's probably the most powerful car I've ever owned. And being able to get up to the, let's say, the um, up towards the speed limit happens very quickly indeed, um, which I'm not necessarily used to. Um, so because you haven't got like the rev of the engine to help, I guess you um, you sync that in. That's taken a bit of getting used to. There is also the the level of automation that you can that you have. So this car has a, a sort of it doesn't have full auto drive like um, like say a Tesla would. Um, I mean, so that's a clue to it's not a Tesla. Um, but it does have um, steering assist. It does have um, lane uh, lane assist. It does have a level of, of auto drive as long as you're keeping your hand somewhere near the steering wheel and, and that type of thing. Getting used to the, to trusting that um, mm-hmm. <laughs> me a while. Um, cause, but it does, it's quite good. It's actually quite good at subtly cueing you back into um, if, you, if you let, like, you're not necessarily grasping the steering wheel with enough um that it can detect it. it it sort of sits there and goes touch the wheel touch the wheel put your hand on the wheel put your hand on the wheel put your hand on the wheel and then just says right i'm out i'm done um and i like the way it does that it, it's not completely in your face because we, we do know that some of the the alerting with um some systems can go a bit mad it, it's well subtly cued um there's some elements as well of the way that it 
I guess the, the the way that you are learning how to engage with the range. So I guess the 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 elephant in the room is range anxiety. So people always sort of have said, you know, you're always worrying about how am I, I going to get to where I am with the number of miles I, I've got with the battery charge I've got. Um, and there was, I've, I've got a car with actually quite a decent amount of range on it, but I could see if you had sort of a small thing to, to put around town in, I could see why that would be a problem. Um, but you have to think about the way that you deal with your energy differently. So you're not just thinking about filling up a tank of fuel and then, um, you know, then that we you know there's infrastructure there chances are you will you'll come across a petrol station or di- uh, a gas station before um before you you need to worry about it with the the ev infrastructure here in the uk um isn't quite brilliant um and so you have to think a bit more about now thankfully the car i i've got it would have got me because i went on a long trip yesterday a longish trip yesterday and it would have got back no problem without a charge but i wanted to try the public network to see how it worked because I'm nosy and, and a bit geeky. And um, and that was, once I did it, actually it was dead simple, um, but there was still some nuances around that, which there's a training element there that we we are an, a cultural um, element and almost a behavioral one as well, that we are going to, to use EVs properly to focus on them, we are going to have to deal with a lot more, more than I anticipated that we would. Wow. Well, for comparison, uh, I'm driving a 2015 Toyota Corolla, and it's it's got a small little screen for uh, for media, which I never use, and it's got a bunch of physical buttons that I use all the time. Uh, and so that's that's our frame of reference for today's conversation, Barry. I want to start just generally. You, you're starting to comment on um, on really the culture. I want to talk about the aging population to start with. I, I think we just take it from the top here because. You're right. There's all these different uh, sort of expectations that folks need to get accustomed to as they get access to these new paradigms of thinking and these new ways of uh, interacting with vehicles. So, you know, you have that whole conversation about digital natives versus um, basically the uh, the folks who need to learn things as they come through. And um, you have these younger generations growing up needing to learn how to operate these vehicles. And in some cases, you know, will it, will it even matter? Um, so, I mean, someday it may or may not even matter that they have these full, uh, full screen controls in the car where um, someone who it, it's a fully automated vehicle, someone who doesn't have a license doesn't even need to be aware of those things. Yeah. No, and I think that's very true. I think you're, we are going to go through an evolution. I think even, I mean, as I've just sort of described the evolution of me three days ago, having never truly driven an, an EV to getting in one and not only do the, doing the, um, the engagement with a new vehicle, but also the gadgets that are involved in it as well. So you, there is a step change in technology. When my children are, well, in fact, my eldest is starting to learn to drive now, but when they come into driving, then autonomy and the autonomous gadgets or the, the driver support gadgets, they will be, for us, I feel that they are still um, a nice, cool gadget to have, but not necessity. Um, whereas they're going to be relying on them a lot more. Um, they're going to be 
into into the i can see them being like driving evs as a first vehicle and then maybe the the the, the um the ice vehicle the um the the, the petrol gas driven vehicle being more of a um a subtlety than um than the than the main thing so as we get older and you know there will be a time when we'll look at them and go oh well when we when we first started on the ev revolution and they'll be like what you actually drove them you actually physically drove them um you didn't just get in and tell you where tell it where you wanted it to go and you parked it yourself you know and i think we'll we'll get we'll definitely get to that yeah i agree let's let's talk a little bit about training then because that that leads right into that generational uh, aspect they're gonna need to learn uh, potentially at some point learn those controls and if they don't then it's going to be an entirely different thing but what about those of us here and now who need to learn controls of these cars that we get, get into that are different uh, i don't know if you've ever like rented a vehicle or anyone listening has ever rented a vehicle and got into it and just i hate this i hate this i hate this this, this is not what i'm used to and it's just it doesn't work the way i'm expecting it to and um and uh, uh what, what happens then is uh you have to get used to it you have to you have to get used to what's going on um in this rental vehicle and um when when you finally get it then it, it gets better because you know it, it just gets better <laughs> by the end of the time that you have with the vehicle then it's um you've almost grown accustomed to it you you brought up the point of like adjusting to some of the um the, the automation bits where it's you know lane assist or um you know distance between you and the car ahead of you uh, uh for like cruise control or something like that and you know for me i, I had an experience recently a couple months ago where I, I was in a vehicle that had those features and i was like oh i don't, I don't know if I, you know and it's okay well jesus take the wheel you know and and ultimately was able to do that and, and give up my control you know within reason uh and trust the system because i got used to it over time and my whole point with this is that Whenever you get into a vehicle, it never feels entirely intuitive. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's um there's there's some learning curve to any vehicle that you get into, screens or buttons aside. No, I think that is um that is absolutely true. I mean, because you go through I guess I can see it from the point of the um the the manufacturers, they want to differentiate themselves from each other, quite rightly so. But having been in a, in a similar situation as you've described around um, getting into different vehicles, then you know I would I had a stage where I would have a different vehicle every week for um, for for about three a period of about four or five years, and there was some elements that you were sort of sitting there going, well, actually, so sometimes the the you know the indicators are on the wrong side of the steering wheel, so you learn uh, you have to learn with that. Um, where are your lights? How and if I remember one car, I think this was a VW Passat, couldn't actually work out how to start the vehicle, and actually, you know, yeah, and when you feel like you have to dive into the um, dive into the book, uh, the instruction manual on on how to just to start the vehicle, then you know you're on a non-starter, um, and so that's where we as human practitioners are sitting there going, right, well, we need standardization, you need standardized symbols, you need standardized um, controls, everything needs to work in the same way. But of course, it's getting that balance right between um, what we want and, um, um, and and what car manufacturers want to get to. And it's at this point, I'd quite like to bring in one of our one of our social thoughts, if that's that's okay with you, because this kind of fits. And this is from um, 
good friend of mine, Tom Blockley, is, is head of uh, technology, head of technology at EU Automation, and he said in in one of the comments before we did the show, "Wow, it's a tough, tough, so tough subject. I don't think anyone has truly nailed, nailed it yet. The closest I've come across is the Polestar Two interface, but it's limited on features. They still do have a few physical buttons, dials for the common usage, but you can't beat tactile feedback." I really want to explore uh, touchscreens, UX, UI in vehicles one day. I think I'll add that car manufacturers chase features rather than good user experience. So they cram in lots, which, can, which has a negative effect. Feature sell cars. And I think that's that's quite clever, quite nicely sums up the sort of what I was saying is is around they want to drive, they want to be seen. It's a bit like phones now, isn't it? As well, it's the you know, who's got the best features? Who's got the slimmest phone? The 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 um, the, the worst the the this slimmest camera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, rather than doing anything um, for the, I guess the the common good. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think that's interesting. Do you want to um, yeah. hit maybe some of the um, the the engineering pits? Well, I'll I'll add an additional piece here. There's somebody else on social said uh, it, it's and. ANSIU, ANSIOU, uh, they, they said they, they bring up this comment about a Tesla. So to activate the wipers in a Tesla, you can press the left turn signal stock once for a quick wiped long press, uh, long press for a spray and wipe. Not as good as a regular control, but removes the need to use the screen. And this is kind of going against the grain where you have no physical controls or, or very minimal con- physical controls in a car, especially in a Tesla. Um, you're looking at that situation where perhaps uh, they need to um, they need to learn those additional, uh, I guess, sets of controls where, um, you know, in this case, you're long pressing or uh, pressing the turnstock, you know, in a different way that you might be used to used to for these types of interactions. Um, so, yeah, I can jump into engineering now. There's you're right. These car manufacturers going into uh sort of these features and you know that's not to say that um it's it's not being considered by ux ui human factors practitioner human factor practitioners on the job in these uh at at these car companies because i'm sure and i've heard about this anecdotally uh that they are they're they're pushing back quite frequently on some of these things it's like they don't the, the users don't need this they don't need this and um it's one of those sort of uh, moral ethical dilemmas about it's not it's not going to it's not ethical or moral or it's one of those things where it's just like, I know this is not great for the user and I am being forced by management to put it in and make it work the best it can. So, you know, with with that, you have these people uh, working at car manufacturers who are looking at the design of the controls and the components and the tactile tactile feel of um, of some of these, you know, in in older days. And even to this day, there's um, some design around tactile touch interfaces that haven't quite hit mainstream yet. That could be a solution to this touchscreen situation. There was a. Um, piece of technology that we talked about, I think even on the show a couple of years ago, uh, I don't remember what exactly the story was, but it is essentially these, these capacitive touchscreens that had uh, the, the ability to inflate uh, part of the screen. So that way it acted like almost a, a bubble button that you pressed and it was capacitive. Cool. So, you know, you still get that tactile feedback. It clicked 
um, like a bubble would, you know, pop or something like that. And so you have you have technology like that that could potentially take take hold someday. Um, but we're not. That's something that we need to about, especially when it comes to those non sought up earlier things like air conditioning, the things like uh, you know adjusting the thing like that where. Maybe not mission critical, but you need to know where they're at so that way you're not averse from your screen. And in fact, we talked about this in the pre-show a little bit. I was talking about how I have my my uh, for for streaming where I have you know right here and the notes right here. And sorry for the for the audio listeners, I have them right in the center of my screen, side by side, so that way I don't have to go off to one side and look off to another side and look they're all right there in one place uh, but if i do need some controls off to the side like right now apparently we're having some network connectivity issues and so i have a local copy running over here and if i need to get to those controls they're there but i can't do them not sighted that uh, they're just there if i need them and i have to look over and look away from engaging with the audience and so there's um all these other types of things that you need to consider when you're when you're um interacting with these non-sided controls, especially for something like, I don't know, you don't really have stick shifts much anymore, but if you need to operate a stick shift, it would be quite difficult to do with touch buttons rather than a stick shift, you know? <laughs> so, uh, or even, you know, switching modes from automatic to uh, neutral or something along those lines. So that's that's some of the, um, the, uh, the bits around controls and displays. I will bring up one more point here. Um, pencil bump says, I, I can't stand touch screens in cars. They make no sense. You have to look at them to press, whereas a physical button or knob, you get the general idea of where it is and, and can feel to make sure. All right, Barry, where do you, where do you think, uh, controls and displays are going in cars? We talked a little bit about the, you know, the tactile feel. So in the grand scheme of things, I think a lot of this is going to fall down to where we're at in, in terms of looking at looking at it as a as an entire as an entire system. Um you know, the we need to be able to get back to fundamentally right, what is the what what is what what are all the systems there to do? Um we need to be doing things, you know, that we know we like big buttons to be able to press and, and to be able to do that sort of stuff. If you if you're designing touch screens themselves, you know you need um not only the sort of 11 mil square button um, that, that we normally design, design to. You need some, you need a decent bit of real estate to be able to press and understand. And that's been one of my experiences this week with the ability to um, adjust the screen um, to be able to deal with um, how big or small you want these buttons and, and things like that. Um, I think the, it's, it's very easy to sort of, to, to do down the software and, and, and not really um, look at the advantages of it, but let's look at the advantages of the of the touch screens. As as is one has been said in one of the um, one of the social thoughts uh, by Trevor Dobbins, um, touch screens are cheap. Um, the quality buttons to to do something that's really tactile and, and only only serves one function um, is really expensive. Uh, a physical button you can't you can't then redesign. You can't really upgrade it in flight. Uh, you can't do that. So over the air um, updates is now becoming such a um, such a useful thing. That's where one of the advantages are that we learn stuff, we develop a better um, human machine interface, and therefore we can send an update and actually give that update to people, which people are now really used to because of the whole smartphone um, thing. So 
I think the but there is still something to get something to getting that balance right. So what I found is the um, there is still some manual controls that you need to do to um, to control the car. In some things that we've talked about in terms of um, safety, in terms of can you still control the car if the big screen doesn't go? But then what what value does the the big screen give you? And there's another there's two advantages that I identified uh, today that I think um, are brilliant because uh, there's so many times you have physical controls in in a car that is, goes back to what we said before about higher cars and stuff that you don't necessarily know what it does and because you don't know what it does you don't touch it um because you don't want to go and look it up in the book because that'd be cheating um so you don't you don't touch it the those there's some settings that i've had in my car that so driving modes for example it's got three different driving modes um and because i didn't know what they were it's got the little eye icon beside it which means you can press that and it'll describe it to you and tell you what it is that you're actually going to select um which is brilliant because that means that, that it's allowing for them different types of user you, you you've got your novice user and it's giving you that information that you want but for a, a for your experienced standard user actually it's hidden away you don't you don't need to worry about it you can't do that in with physical controls you when you then update the uh, update the screen as we said you can then incorporate the latest updates hardware stays the same but the latest thing can you you can bring that through the other bit that I thought was um, was was really good was the was the level of customization um, and being able to build all that stuff into place. So you can actually make the interior of the car by the use of because it does take up a large bit of real estate. And, it, and on some cars, it's not just one touchscreen. Um, there are things like I think uh, the Kia EV6 actually has two different touchscreens that you can customize and, and engage with. So it's actually making it more your own and how you you would like to do, which you just wouldn't be able to do in um in with a uh sort of a, a standard standard touchscreen um so yeah i think there are some advantage advantages to this that we possibly don't want to don't want to do away with it's it's about how do we get the allocation of function right how do we make sure that we don't just get ourselves into into that state of affairs where i alluded to right at the beginning where you've got you know everything has to be touchscreen we, we took it all at touchscreen that's the answer to everything because fundamentally when that fails um then you've got absolutely nothing. And unless you know, I mean, I was lucky. I was able to do a quick uh, quick um, Google search about what happens to reset my screen. I found that 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 solution. In fact, I didn't find it. A colleague found it. Um, and we had it sorted within minutes. It wasn't a problem. But actually, if I didn't know how to do that or what it just completely failed, that would have been quite disastrous. Yeah, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up another point here. You brought up uh, Trevor's point about touchscreens being cheap. Uh, Exta also brought this up saying they, they make perfect sense. Uh, they're cheaper to manufacture and to produce. Buttons are expensive to engineer and design proper long lasting ones. Cannot change the text image function at the last section second uh, versus a touchscreen where literally they can change it after the car has been delivered via software. This is exactly what you're talking about, Barry. Add to that, somehow manufacturers manage to convince consumers that touchscreens are more luxurious than buttons. Unfortunately, they're here to stay. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about touchscreens being here to stay. Because you're right, they do offer some of those advantages uh, that we might want to take advantage of and have long term. In terms of more, uh, I mean, if you think about it, the the advantage here is more real estate for displays, and it can mm -hmm. provide some of those high level informations uh, pieces at a glance but I don't know if they're optimal for controls. Now, the question is, 
would bigger touchscreens with larger controls and haptic feedback solve some of the issues? Um, you know, if you think about Fitz Law, for example, if you make the target bigger for some of these key critical operations in a vehicle, could that potentially solve the issue? And if not, you know, how how can we solve these issues? Is it, a, is it possible to design a touchscreen system that performs better than physical controls? And what might that look like? Right. These are all questions that I have. I, I know you don't have the answers today, but uh, there's got to be a way, right? I, well, there is. I mean, the biggest thing I have with touchscreen, so haptics are a really good thing to talk about. And we know that there are technologies out there where they're trying to put, I mean, we have it on, on our mobile phones, don't we, now that you can press it and, and the screen vibrates. So you know you've got, they're, they're starting to put more of the clicks in there. They're starting to put um, more of that sort of net. So we know it's beginning to be possible. Um, do we, and there are some technologies out there that are sort of coming to pass that you can get a sort of a texture on a, on a touchscreen. You, you've, you alluded to that earlier. But for me, this is about anchoring. Um, about where you anchor your hand or your uh, your hand in order to be able to be sure of where you're of where you're pressing. So, when you're dealing with a physical control, you know that you 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 go through that three stage process. Um, you might well sort of two step process of if you, if it's unsighted, um, or if it's sighted, you 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 know where it is. You go and press it. You you put your hand over it. You re, um, you have that reference reference back to thing. It feels like what I'm meant to be pressing. It's where I expect it to be. Therefore, I'm a, I it is the button I want. And then you activate it. And if it's something that's a, that's a bit flatter, you will anchor your hand alongside that to make sure your hand stays steady whilst you're activating the button. If it if it's maybe not like a rotary switch or, or whatever. Um, you just can't do that with a touchscreen. You have to look at the touchscreen to make it work um, because you you need to confirm, you need to be able to look at, right, I'm going to go and touch there and then be able to um, put your finger on it and then, then get the reference back that you've actually pressed it. Even with a vibration there, that's not going to help guide your hand into it. So I think this goes back to this idea of the, the allocation of function. I think the screen is great as long as we're putting the stuff onto it that... Um, that is non, not necessarily crucial. You put quite important stuff on there, but it do, it's not crucial, for, completely crucial for operation. Anything that you need to be able to do unsighted, um, and that could be, you know, things that maybe not as important, but you, I guess in that the I'm trying, I'm trying to think of. So my center console is where I have the um, the, the dial to turn it from drive into reverse, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I know where that is, and I know I could get it into park unsighted. If I'm going, to, and I could probably get in to reverse unsighted as well, uh, which are quite important. And in, to drive, that's quite a thing. So you need to be able to um, see that to do it. Um, and it's nice rotary; it gives me a nice clicky sensation. I know when when it's gone from one to another, so I could do it without worrying about it. It tells me in front of me what I've selected, um, so I don't need to look at that to to change it. It's going to take me a bit of practice to do that because I'm still used to a, a manual a manual shifter. Um, but with this, yeah, with the touchscreen, you, you, I just don't see where. You can't halfway through the journey put your hand on the touchscreen and use that as an point to be able to then control the touchscreen in any way. You 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 you're dangling your hand in midair, and you've got vibration of the vehicle, all that sort of stuff that means that you you cannot guarantee where you're going to hit. Um, which is probably the sentence I should have said right at the beginning instead of babbling along, along <laughs> around it for so long. But um, it just it's 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 just that whole. Conscious effort. So to go back to, I mean, the, my frame of reference for this is is cockpits. 
um, and particularly sort of like sort of fast check cockpits. And they have so many Im important buttons around button switches, rotary switches um, that are maybe like down by the sides, almost like like the like the beside the thighs and, and things like that. And they're things like they're maybe not necessarily completely flight critical, um, but they are mission critical. So it's been able to select the the right radios. It's been able to know that you're in the right sort of mode. And there's so much thought gone into making sure that like um, no two knobs feel the same. They've got different textures. They're maybe, they're maybe like three-sided, four-sided, five-sided. They rotate in different ways. They've got really strong feedback on what you're doing and that you've got a positive selection and things like that. And you could argue that some of it isn't, as important in a car but then there's so many more cars and actually there's some things that you do need to have that way um if we could get really good if we could get haptics into the screens then that's cool um but actually i, I think they are there i think as you said that they are going to be there to stay and they do offer a lot of value i think it's easy to look at them and go i oh, know they're rubbish modern modern, uh, modern technical technological stuff um but they do add value um i think it there's just things there that we've still got a fair way to go. You can see that battle um, that we sort of described earlier between the the human factors and UX designers going, right, it needs to do this and it needs to do this. And then somebody else said, but I've seen another company do this. And so we need to, we need one of them and we need it bigger and we need it better and we need it in silver, you know, whatever. You know, you can see that almost the, 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 the positive tension there, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because that's clearly how they sell cars between good usability good engagement good good systems thinking to good marketing and just get somebody coming up with it i've got some really cool gadgets that we need to throw into this yeah i, I want to comment on the you brought up the anchoring and and trying to do all these operations on sighted uh film grain another social thought here oh my goodness it's ridiculous right when the user has to tap through multiple screens with pinpoint precision at different points on a massive display while it's pouring outside seems like such an oversight not a fan of tesla's ux in general they outperform the industry in so many ways but i find myself getting frustrated whenever i sit in one more evidence to me that analog controls in general provide better experience than digital touch screens i think this goes a little far away from your point <laughs> with, you know, we, there's a happy medium between the two, but I think it is an important question to talk about what, what types of controls do better than others uh, and which ones are, are better suited for those sighted versus unsighted uh, types of interactions. Right. I, I mean, for me, I, this is anecdotal evidence here, but like um, volume controls is one thing that I both control from my steering wheel. And when I go to do a sighted or unsighted control. I, you know, turn it down or turn it up. Um, and you're right. I have that anchor there. I, I reach over and it feels a certain way. I know by the size of the knob, what it does. And then, you know, for AC, it's like, it's like volume controls and AC are the biggest ones that I need unsighted aside from the, you know, the whole, um, what are you laughing at the catio here? <laughs> Cat cameo. Uh, so, those are the big ones aside from, you know, the actual car controls. Uh, and so is that ultimately what they come down on is you know everything that's not that because I have, like I said, I have my media center controls are touchscreen, but they're, they're um, pressure sensitive, not capacitive. And so sometimes I'll sit there going, where is this part of the thing that I need to click on and press? And then I need to like, really hard press it sometimes and take my focus away from 
the road because it won't go in a certain way. And if it was capacitive, maybe that fixes the issue. But it, it's still at the same time, I have to like, you know, click through and do the Bluetooth connection thing and all that stuff. And it's just where is the optimal solution? And ideally, you know, you'd be doing navigation before you get started with the car. But sometimes it's just not possible. You got to navigate while you're in the car because you made a wrong turn uh, and you, or you decided that you needed to go somewhere else. Um, so there's there's just a bunch of things to, to think about. And as we're thinking about these types of uh, different ways to interact with things, there's a cr- question here from Christy on YouTube. Uh, do you think that voice controls will get better and help with some of these challenges? Barry, what is your opinion on voice controls and how can those augment some of these issues that we have with touchscreen controls and the trade-off between physical buttons and the touchscreens? So um, I'm pleased you brought this up because um, I've got a, a love-hate relationship with, with voice control to a certain extent. I've been involved with uh, voice interaction for quite a long time, from early days when um, you had to hard code it into, into hardware rather than it being software controlled and things, and then early software versions. I think in vehicles now, I think there is... If you can do things by voice controls, then yes, it will work. But it, for me, in terms of different people coming and using the cars, you've got to have an almost that unstructured hierarchy of control. So a bit like what we do now with smart speakers, and we've spoken about smart smart, smart speakers quite a lot. Um, so you need to be able to, in natural language, tell it what you want it to do, and it do it, and it find it. So if you need to find out information, like, I, I, you know, where's my next charger? Where's, um, you know, navigate me home? Then them sort of simple things are good um, and really useful, um, as, assuming that they work. Where I have a problem with voice controls, where they most a, a lot of operators implement them, is almost the same issue as I've got with some of the touchscreen design as well, and that is control hierarchy. Um, it's what I found with the voice control of the car I'm using, as well as the hierarchy of the touchscreen, is you're going to have to learn it. You, you need to know the, the 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 access points for getting to settings, and some of them cross over, some of them. Um, as an example that I've got, um, so to get to the parking um, sensors um, and pull up the parking cameras, I can go like three different ways to get to the same screen. I've got a physical control, I've got an access point, and I've got um, and and I can put it into reverse itself. And but then other things you can only access one way, and you have to learn the route to get to it. And it's meant to learn as you do it, and it'll bring them up to the top, but. Um, if the voice control has a hierarchy in that, again, you you unless it's easy to learn, then you just won't use it um, because it, there's no there's very few prompts. It's like a smart speaker; you've got few prompts to tell you where you're at in the tree um, and whether it's actually going to do it properly. And you're trying it's something you, you're going to use when you're when you're stressed and and that type of thing because you know you're invariably at that point of I need help, so therefore you're going to reach out to the vehicle to give you assistance. Um, so. I, as much as I think voice controls are cool, um, I don't think they're going to help in the. I, I don't think they're really going to help with the challenges. I think they're going to be an extra gadget. They're they're not ready for it. Certainly, um, I, I think you know as NLP natural language processing is as that becomes more intuitive and and better understood by some of these uh, companies, right? Like the big one that everyone's putting into the cars is the one that starts with a, or the one that starts with G and, and um, they're basically kind of contracting out those voice 
services to those companies without actually building them from the ground up for the cars, for the vehicles. Uh, and, and when they do do it in that case, there's oftentimes, um, you know, you don't have the same level of, I guess, R&D behind those commands. And yes, they're very focused commands, but they don't necessarily plug into some of the other parts of your ecosystem. So like, you know, hey, open my garage door. Um, that might be something useful for you to do so you don't have to reach up and click the button. Uh, and so there's right now, I don't think we're ready. But in the future, if somebody were to do a prompt like, hey, show, show me the rear, the rear camera, you know, and it just pops it up. That might be um, that might be a cool feature, right? Like if it understands the intent, or if it's uh, if it's potentially a destructive action, like "Hey, put me in park while I'm going 60 miles per hour." Um, mm -hmm. That you know, are you sure you want to do that? Uh, you know, there's some confirmation there, and I think really it comes down to understanding the driver's intent behind that. Like, when would you use a conversational interface like turn down the volume? Well, can it even hear you when you have the volume blaring, um, you know, turn the AC down or, you know, turn the fan down, those types of things, because I could say either one of those, turn the AC down, turn the fan down. And it would I'd want that to do the same thing. I don't necessarily want when I say turn the AC down, I'm not telling you to turn the temperature up. I'm telling you to reduce the fan speed so that way it's not as. Uh, but, you know, when I like it's cold in here, or, like, you know, <laughs> warm it up or something like that, you know, it, it needs to be able to understand your intent better. I and I think, there, there is, yeah, I think there is a level of that that goes hand in hand with automation. Um, yeah. So when you can get higher level commands, so um, take me to work. And it drives you to work, you know, it does all the stuff there. Um, you know, it it's the uh, engage cruise control. You know, so setting high-level functions and then letting it do its thing, that's where voice controls will be really good because it's simple, it's giving it direction, and there will no doubt be a bit of feedback. I mean, using, um, you know, you've got Apple and Android CarPlays, um, you know, uh, the, the both varieties, they have a level of voice control, which actually works relatively well. But again, it's not critical to the task you're carrying out. It's, it's critical to your infotainment system. Um, so, you know, read out my text messages or play my music and things like that. And it'll do all that. That's fine because it's not critical to the operation. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how that develops over time. Maybe, we'll, maybe in, in like sort of 100 episodes time, we can come back and refresh it and see where we're at. What is that? That's two years. So, yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I, we do got to move on, but I do want to make sure that we talk about one more point here about safety. There's huge safety implications outlined here in this article. Um, you're talking about the difference between like twice as long for somebody to interact with something uh, when they're looking at a touchscreen versus doing the sighted control or the unsighted controls with buttons and displays. Uh, physical controls were almost half as fast as touchscreen controls. Um, and it'd be curious to see how voice controls actually held up performance wise. So, um, I do want to just kind of end there. Do you have any other last thoughts on this before we move on? I think I'll just caveat that last comment that we made with actually the, the, the tasks that they were being asked to do going back to you with your setup of the experiment, were not safety critical. Um, they were messing about with the AC and messing about with the radio. Um, so it'd be interesting to see. I'm not saying that what they did was wrong, but it'd be interesting to see what if they had to do some driving tasks, not just um, um, 
I guess, comfort tasks um, to see if there, w- there would be a difference in performance in that that respect. But, uh, you know, we're not going to argue with the fact we know that physical physical controls work better um, for, for, for set tasks. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic, and thank you to our friends over at Futurism for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these articles. We're going to take a quick break, uh, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff, patron Michelle Tripp. Hey, aside from Patreon, did you know that we also have a Discord server? Uh, If you want to get involved talking with other Human Factors professionals from all over the world and join our community, we... um, you know, we have a bunch of resources in there, so you get access to those we got our hands on over the last couple of years. Uh, there's plenty of discussions in there, some some really cool discussions about cloud gaming, NFTs, uh, whatever those are, non-fungible tokens, <laughs> uh, and even more context around some of the questions that we source for the show. So that's uh, oftentimes a good place where folks just come and ask us questions in the career section. Uh, and you can even chat with others uh, in the voice channels if you want to uh, and do some networking there. It's also where we conduct our lab chat. So, you know, that's that's hidden to the public, but, you know, we're on there all the time. Uh, and it's an, an effective tool for getting stuff done, at least behind the scenes. Um, and then so you can also post your questionnaires if you're doing any research or recruitment for job positions or anything like that is a good good community to reach out to uh, with a bunch of like-minded human factors folks. So if you're not already a member of our uh, discord channel, discord server, please, you know, go check it out. Say hi to us. We are there uh, all week. So if, if you want to like actually talk to us and not just have us talk to you in your ear, you can, you can do that there. It's, it's kind of cool actually to <laughs> hear from people who listen to the show. So, so uh, anyway, let's get into this next part of the show. We like to call. It came from... It came from. That's right. It came from. Uh, it came from. That's that's it. Uh, <laughs> part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. Uh, if you find any of these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're watching, listening, um, absorbing. Uh, what, what other ways can you ingest? Um, <laughs> Is this like a dining experience? Uh, whatever. It, just give us a like to help other people find this type of thing because uh, it might be helpful for them too. All right, we got three tonight. Uh, this first one here is by Iron Omen on the user experience subreddit. They write, do I stay or not? I have been in UX for 10 years, often wearing many hats. 
I get into UX and UI design because it seemed pretty clear cut. Experiment, follow the evidence, gradually make a product and process better. Most of the time I spend fighting against practices and phrases such as, we already know what the user wants. We can fix it after release. Just make it look good. You don't need to test with users. We've never done that. And on and on. And so it has been, in one form or another, a constant breaking or ignoring of rules. I'm so tired of getting punched in the throat for pointing out the evidence that goes against the good idea fairy. I'm tired of UIs that break simple rules of design and make a product harder to use. Are there any companies out there that are not continually hostile to UX and the process? Barry, have you worked for a company that's hostile to UX? Do you feel like this is the norm? Uh, and what do you do in this situation? Do you leave if someone is experiencing this? Um, yes, yes, and no. I think that's the order. So yes, I. You know, I. I think there's there is a difference here. I think between being absolutely hostile to to UX and that and and human factors um, approaches, and there being positive tension. I think if I sort of started suggesting stuff and the entire rest of the project team just turned around and said, yeah, of course, yeah, crack on. I might then be more worried about why would they let me get away with it? Um, equally, um, I, th I think where a lot of people struggle is seeing um, HF and UX as an equal partner at the table. Um, if you look, think about the entire project table, so you've got engineering, you've got marketing, you've got comms, you've got pro project management, you've got HF, you've got um, them sort of things. We so I think we struggle quite a lot of the time to get the appropriate seat at the top table, and that can be quite frustrating. But I do feel that part of what we do is, as well as doing the good stuff, um, you know, be that UX design, be that um, good physical design, good organizational influence, and things like that. We do do politics. Um, that's small people politics around the project, around the organization, because we fundamentally, we are at that piece where we have no other agenda except for making sure that the user can use the product. And, and we, know, we, we perhaps don't necessarily realize that actually maybe software engineers or other engineers or uh, product, uh, other parts of the project, their actual influence isn't necessarily the same as ours. We think it's really obvious that the main thing you want to do is to make a product that's usable. But actually, some of the software engineers are wanting to make sure that the, that the software is safe, as safe as it possibly can be. And we constantly believe that there are sort of, uh, certainly self-critical software engineers can, can believe that actually the user is the worst thing we want to not let them anywhere near um, or give them as little control as possible. Because actually, in some uh, domains, you're taught that the that the the only way that the safest way the system can be is to have no user interaction at all, because the user is the cause of all pain. Um, so we've got to have a balance there. But I do feel the pain of yes, you these excuses that people come up with, particularly oh, we already know what the user needs. We don't need to ask them. It's fine because we know, um, or I, I know how to do it best. And it shames me to say, but I see that coming from some HF designers as well. Um, so I do see that coming from within our own profession as well as without of it. Um, so I do sympathize with that one. But I see it's part of the job. It's We just keep on, it, we don't call it fighting the good fight for nothing. Yeah, I'm I'm of a similar mind to you. I think it's, it's hopefully there will be a day when, when UX does not have to advocate for themselves. <laughs> hopefully they'll just get it. And I feel like there's, you know, slowly a, a turn on that to where, uh, we do have that seat at the table more and more. 
uh, maybe not as often as we'd like, but it's it's getting to that point where people are really starting to see the value in what we do. And so, I don't know, keep pushing through it. It's You're right. There's a difference between hostility and friendly sort of uh, tension where um, there's competing objectives where our objective is to make something usable and easy for somebody to do. And um, somebody else, like you said, security might be, you know, don't, don't give them access to this, make it safe. Somebody else might have like a developer might have a, a do this in the most efficient way possible from a code perspective, but that might also, you know, run into some issues for what's possible in the UI. And so you have that, that competing perspective too. And really um, I think Barry, you said it good. We're kind of the, you know, the negotiator between uh, all these different types of parties where um, we're going to advocate for the user in the process. And ultimately, if if we get our way, which is the user's way, uh, then then hopefully that'll be reflected in the final product, but maybe not, you know, it, because another um, objective wins out in that case. You know, it could just be that the risk for exposing these controls to the user is too great uh, for security reasons. So that wins out. It's just, we gotta, we gotta come to the table. If it's a hostile environment, get out of there. I mean, you don't need that. Um, <laughs> that's all I have to say to that. Uh, Barry, this one's going to be a little bit easier. This one's from uh, green strain seven, six, one on the human factors subreddit. They write typical human factors tech stack. So this is things like data modeling, UX reference material. Uh, what do you use in your day to day tech stack uh, or what have you used that type of thing? All of that. Yeah, I think, yeah. It, I mean, I guess the, my, certainly when I'm doing day-to-day -day work for the military domain, um, my um, my fallback is always the, the the standards that we're using, so particularly defense standards. They're, in fact, our uh, defense standard here in the UK for human facts integration, um, what they call 00251, um, has just gone through a revision and got, and got um, re-released at the back end of last year. So started coming to real use at the start of this year. And that's actually gone through a really nice review where it's actually, I'm not saying the one before wasn't terribly use, uh, usable, but it wasn't terribly usable. Um, this one is a one volume and you can actually give it to a, a non-HF person and say, right, this is what I'm working to. Um, and this is what I'm requiring out of um, out of everybody. And it's really quite, the, the team that's done this has made it really quite digestible and, um, and, and, and focused, which I really like. Um, in terms of everything else, there is, well, I, I haven't said it depends so far this session, so that this is good. Wow. Um, tends basically what, what we're doing, but um, the, yeah, pull out everything from past experience to, um, to current data, um, where, where's your, your the, the user data that you're playing with, what um, engagement with your users, that that type of thing always takes priority for me um, into, in, you know, the, the live, that the, the close to the data to the target, what I'm trying to do takes priority over, um, you know, ancient data that, that hasn't been around. Um, yeah, it just kind of depends. I think the, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have a, a typical stack that I would, would go to as such, but I do have the, have a, a more of a generic stack, I think, but it's uh, fundamentally, I, I always try and base my stuff in the, in the standards and, and, and use them as the guide because everyone else does. And therefore you're delivering that common view. You're not giving anybody any surprises in terms of what to expect and when. 
Yeah. There's <clears throat> so I, I'm going to approach this from two different perspectives. So there's like the the things that we use from a human factors uh, perspective, which I think you know it it will largely depend. There I there I go on the domain in which you're you know grounded in. Um, so uh, you can go with industry standards. You can go with uh, a bunch of other things. I'm going to tackle this from a different perspective, like the tools that we use every day, like a, a true tech stack, um, you know, for communication, things like Slack or, um, you know, in our lab, we use Discord, but that's not industry. You know, we there's uh, Microsoft Teams, Microsoft Suite. That's something that you use. And so when we talk about things like data, um, Google Sheets or uh, Microsoft Excel, right? Those are the types of things in which we're storing data in because those are the things that are available to us at most places. Uh, when you look at modeling, that will also depend on what type of problem you're looking at. There's different tools for different industries. And so I can't speak to every industry, but you know, there's there's people have built spreadsheets that have models in them. And if you're already using Google Sheets and uh, and, and Excel, then you know, why not do KLM in in uh, Excel? Um, in terms of UX, there's a bunch of different tools out there. There's not really any standard tool for design. You might have, you know, the, the big ones, Figma, XD. But in terms of UX, there's a bunch of tools out there. And it really depends on which one's going to fit your purpose the best. Um, I know some people who do everything in-house and don't really do external tools. It's just going to depend. Uh, reference material, again, same thing. So it depends. That's it. That's, I mean. <laughs> I would say that actually just on the, because um, we, we started to mess around with Figma, which I find quite interesting, but PowerPoint is such an underrated tool. Uh, it really is. For doing, uh, for doing UX design and for particularly being able to send stuff out to um, stakeholders because most people have, access to our either PowerPoint or PowerPoint viewer. And it's just brilliant. People who are way better interface or more uh, more UX designers uh, that I sort of engage with, they're like, what do you mean you're not using that? What, what, how can you how can you use PowerPoint to do it? And it's like, well, it does the job. I, 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 I do have a soft spot for it. I will go to my grave saying that PowerPoint is the best design tool ever created uh, because, because of the ubiquity. Because of the ubiquity. It really is. So, All right. Is that one more? Yeah. <laughs> People have clicked off already. Uh, all right. Well, let's see here. One more here. What do you guys look for in a company before joining? This is by uh, Kivatsale. Probably Good said that wrong. User experience subreddit. At this point, it's getting frustrating to me. I quitted. I quit five days ago because it was a horrible experience. The company was so development focused. They didn't care about design. I am in the initial phase of my career and I feel like I'm making the same mistakes again and again. I want to work with a company that understands and values design. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't do this often, but I'm, I'm laughing at the question. Sorry. I want to work with a company that understands and values design. How do you guys decide to work for a company? Like what are the things that y'all look for in a company? What are must haves? Please help. Barry, what do you look for in a company? People. Absolutely. People. It's got to be, hasn't it? Um, here in the UK, I think it's a, the HF world is brilliant because it's, it's such a small domain in the grand scheme of things. And we've sort of said this before, you know, even like worldwide, it's a relatively small domain, but in the UK, I, I sort of preach this whole one degree of freedom. Um, I'm, I might not directly know, you know, I definitely don't know everybody in the HF domain. I don't know everybody in the HF defense domain, because even though, even though that's my primary domain. Um, but I, but we all generally know 
one person within it. So you've always got that one degree of freedom. Um, equally, what I quite like about, and one of the things that really attracts me with the human factors piece is that nobody is really truly awful. Um, and the people who are generally don't last very long. Um, so I could go along to say a, a new, um, a, a new client or um, a new partner or whatever. And we might not necessarily know each other, but you can generally still get along. You can still, you can still work with people. And, and even if you go from like business to business, so, you know, you, you move from one business to another, there's no real negativity around that because it's almost like what goes around comes around. It's such a small ecosystem in that respect. And that's why I love it. That's why I think it's re it's really neat. So the way I would then go and look for another company is, and so it's it's, it's exactly what I do when I'm looking for companies companies to partner with, is who's involved. It's not the, you know, you know what capability do they have, which is important, but it's actually it's it's who is it, um, you know. And there's some really good people in some um, the small, medium, and large companies that you know you can go to and say, um, I'm not come to talk to you as the company, but I'm come to talk to you, Bob or Mary or whoever, I'm looking to do this. Do we want to work together? Do we, or is it worth me coming to come to work with you? And so that primary focus has got to be go and talk to the people who are working there. If they say it's great, chances are they're, um, they're telling the truth, especially if they're still late. They leave five minutes later than they're clearly not. Um, but the go and do that. If, if they generally, most people will front up and tell you if it's actually not worth if it's not that if it's not going to work for you because fundamentally it's not in their interest to get you along if they don't if they're not going to work together not going to work together well so look at the people if the people if the people give you the ick feeling then don't do it on oh, money money helps um, yeah but not as make sure the money's right but the people are the most important yeah i was going to say uh, salary work life balance and uh, um the third point I had, which is kind of along the lines of people, is eagerness to learn and collaborate. Like that is that is kind of the big one for me, uh, which are character traits of people. So I, I guess kind of the same. But yeah, salary and work life balance. If you don't have uh, enough to pay for the things that you deem necessary, um, or if you don't have the time to do the things that you enjoy outside of work, uh, like. You know, if there's ever a job that told me I couldn't podcast or that I couldn't, you know, or, or kept me so busy that I felt like I couldn't do it, uh, then it would be a, a deal breaker for me. So uh, th those are kind of my big ones. I think I think we kind of got our bases covered there. Uh, and and now it's time for just one more thing. Barry, you I, I am so excited about your one more thing this week because you you um you teased it. And I'm really curious as to what it is. So I had. um an interview today or a, a discussion, a, a workshop, if you will, around marketing, because we are doing some work around, you know, my company, we, we talk human factors very well, but actually talking to other people about human factors who are not in the human factors community or not in um, domains that, that do that. Um, how do you sell human factors? It's, it's that age old thing. So I was speaking to this marketing person and she was brilliant and she turned around. So we've been developing like sort of, postcards and got brochures in print and all this. Sort of, and I've been really struggling about, right, what is it you put in there? We want it to be simple, effective. What have other people done? So we do all the things, but I would consider a user-centered user approach. What is it? What is my message that I'm trying to get out there? And she turned around and said, why are you doing that? Because you're, you know, 
should, rather than saying what you should, what what is it you are trying to get out there? You should, why are you not saying what is it my potential customer wants to hear? And I was like, you know, when you just sort of like have the the mic drop moment, and I'm like, hold on a second, you're talking about how the user uses my stuff. <laughs> I do this for a day job, and I didn't get that. Um, it was just such a such a simple reorientation. It just goes to prove on many levels that you know. I've been in, working in, in HF now for what twenty years, and I didn't get that. You learn stuff every, and you every all need reminded to make sure that we've got the perception the right way around, and we can easily all fall over just because it's in a different domain, just because it's in a different thing. And I, just, as soon as she sort of said it, I just I couldn't help but laugh. I couldn't help but you know in that whole ironic, I'm a moron type of way because it was it just. It just clicked. It made so much sense when she said it, and I just—it was—it was unreal. Um, so yeah, so that was my, that was my lesson of the day. Uh, even though we do this as a day job, it doesn't mean you you don't get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I I feel that, and you have just given me an idea for something we should talk about offline. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Take that offline. Uh, my one yeah. more thing this week. Um, is I'm still deciding which one I talk about. I'll talk about the automation wins. Uh, I have had a breakthrough in some automation that I've been working on behind the scenes that is going to save me hours of time. And it feels so good. I've talked about, you know, getting these automated things done in the past. And it just, this is one that I've tried and tried and tried and banged my head against. For months, this has been plaguing my existence. I'm like, I know this thing is coming up. I need to figure out how to do it. I need to figure out how to do it. Thankfully, I still have a couple months left before it's like really a thing. But that gives me a bunch of lead time to perfect this automation. Now it's working. It's working. And I can't quite tell you what it is that I'm automating yet. It's for <laughs> it's for this, uh, the podcast. Um, I just can't tell you yet. And... There, there will be an announcement at some point. Don't, don't worry. Uh, but um, it's good. It's good. It saves me so much time. It saves me probably like twenty minutes a week, which um, you know, it doesn't sound like much. Actually, it probably saves me like thirty minutes a week, and and uh, it, that doesn't sound like much. But when I'm doing all this other stuff for the podcast, um, and and other things. Um, it, it really does make a difference. That's 30 more minutes I can spend with my wife and kid. So anyway, small wins. And that's one more thing. So that's it for today, everyone. Uh, let us know what you guys think of the story this week. If you enjoy some of the discussion about the future of cars, I'll encourage you to go listen to last week's recap, recast. Uh, how will cars of the future understand their passengers? Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion. You can always join us on our Discord community. Reminder, there's a bunch of people over there willing to talk. Uh, visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things that you can do. One, go and leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening or watching right now. That is free for you to do. Two, you can tell your friends and colleagues about us. That really helps the show grow. Uh, say, hey, these guys are talking about buttons in cars. Might lead to an article in The Ergonomist. Who knows? Uh, and, and three, if you have the money... You might want to throw it our way because we make some really cool stuff with the stuff that our Patreon supporters uh, help support the show with. So that might be something you can contribute to if you're financially able. 
Uh, as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about you and your new car? If you want to find out about my new car, then you need to go and find my socials because I'm all over that. Uh, so on Twitter and Facebook and the other ones, I'm at Basil underscore K. Or if you want to go and listen to some of the interviews that we'll be recommencing in a week on Monday, then come and listen at 1202 Human Factors Podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord. Once again, another plug for there. And across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations. And all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs>